Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. Today's episode is a lecture by Langston Kahn entitled Shades and Shadows, How Our Unresolved Ancestors and Denied Selves Hold the Keys to Our Collective Liberation. Presented at the conference Rewriting the Future, 100 Years of Esoteric Modernism, and psychoanalysis. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Trapart Books, 2019. For more, please visit our publisher's website, trapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three C-A-R-L. Your support is greatly appreciated. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. So if you'll humor me, I usually like to start with a little bit of prayer. So would you mind if I, if I lead you in a short song? This is just going to be calling on our our good, true, and beautiful ancestor helping spirits to hold space for us as we talk. So you can just repeat after me. We are standing on your bones. We are calling you. Thankful for your gifts. We are thankful for your song. We are thankful for your song. You who've waited for so long. Ancestor helping spirits, you who lived well and died well, you who met the challenges of your time, you who hold all that is good and true and beautiful in our lines, we call out to you, especially you ancestors who knew what it meant to be together in community, who knew what it meant to express your soul to its fullest extent during your lifetime so you could transmute what was poison into medicine for your people and in doing so provide wisdom for the future generations. We honor you and we ask that you help us as we talk this day. May what needs to be said be said. May what needs to be heard be heard. And may all these proceedings go forward in a way that serves all living things. Thank you. So, what I'd like to do today is talk about two problems. 
that I think are facing us in our culture today. And I don't, I'm not really going to go too much into the solutions as much, but just explore the problems a bit. Um, and I was interested in the, in the topic of the conference of, um, you know, 100 years of esoteric modernism. And I was thinking about modernism a lot and the way that to a large extent um, for, you know, many hundreds of years, you've been experimenting in the West with what happens when you abandon ritual and tending the thresholds of different types of initiation, such as birth, initiation into adulthood, eldership, and death, as many of the presenters have already been talking about to different extents. And I think in many ways, modernism was characterized by a sort of probing of the wound of that loss. Like, I, like I've heard, you know, there's all like the, the Nietzschean thought of like, God is dead and we have killed him. And, and modernism is the exploration of that absence. But I think even deeper in the absence of God is that when that sort of idea of God falls away from a monotheistic lens, the feeling of the absence of all that that monotheistic lens was covering up, in a sense, of the absence of the young ones who are coming, having their destinies affirmed with them and their names giving to them that will remind them of those destinies, of having children being being actually allowed to drop the baggage of their childhood and step into right relationship with their community and have a feeling of mattering and having unique gifts to give to their community and of having people who've lived long, rich lives, having a way that they can share what they've learned over the course of their life with their community and are honored instead of being like cloistered away somewhere where they can be forgotten in a sense. And, and then the dead being tended in a way that allows us not to have to reinvent the wheel constantly, allowing us to actually draw on their wisdom and, and embody their wisdom through, through how we live. And so I think postmodernism in a sense was a lot about, um, trying to fill that hole with a million different things. And, and in a sense saying, you know, None of it matters. We can we can do this. It doesn't matter if the tradition's dead because we can just just figure it out on our own. And and there's a real beauty in that, uh, in some ways. Um, but what I think I'm really interested in in it is ex- exploring is how we can what when we are are trained as ritualists and trained in traditional lineages and look at. Um, the reality of, of life in uh, indigenous cultures, specifically in pre-contact indigenous cultures, based on some of like the first contacts and anthropological texts, once you remove the colonial bias, we begin to see the gap between where we are now and what was contained in some of those cultures. And I'm interested in people who have taken the time and energy to learn from those cultures, but then are innovating to meet the current needs of our time with that sort of postmodernist spirit to, to bring these, these um, ritual technologies to bear on the unique challenges of our time that might never have been faced in indigenous cultures to some extent. And so I guess I want to start by talking a little bit more about initiation. So in a, in a pre-contact indigenous context, uh, when it's time for a child to be initiated, they're supported, not just in becoming a man or becoming a woman, but in this ability to create an intimate relationship 
with, say, the earth as mother and the sky as father, just use one cosmological example. But this this dropping of um, the need for their parents to fill that role and this stepping into this intimate relationship with the holy powers, in a sense, to fill that role. And and stepping into a sense of real family with the other than human intelligences in that way. Um, there's a way that they are reconnected to their ancestors, made aware of the men and women and other gendered elders that are stretching out behind them so that they can always know they have this deep sense of belonging wherever they go. And they're not looking for their parents or their family of origin to provide that for them. They can hold that in their community for others instead of looking for others to give them that love in that way. Um, And there's, with these relationships intact, they can then also remember and be reminded of the purpose that their soul came here to embody. And again, from, from this perspective, every human being comes with a unique genius, a unique energy that they're here to embody and they're constantly spending their life working to reorient themselves towards and find good vehicles for the expression of in their community. And so after weeks or months of ritual and time spent in sites sacred to their people, when all this had transpired, those initiates who survived this process, because not everyone survived, could now return to their community as true adults because they had met the basic requirements of adulthood essential for harmony in the community. And I think as contemporary Western people, we we tend to either idealize pre-contact indigenous communities as places of like sort of total unconditional love and harmony and belonging or demean them as primitive and backwards or we do both simultaneously. (laughs) And I think we forget that part of what allows for that belonging, balance, and right relationship is really rigorous standards for community living that if you don't meet, you will likely die, you know, or, or have to leave in some way. And so um, Dagra Elder, uh, Dr. Maladoma Patrice May, in his really wonderful memoir um, of Water and Spirit, describes how after being kidnapped by missionaries and raised and educated by them for many years, he managed to escape and miraculously find his way back to his village. Uh, but, and after much rejoicing and welcoming him back into village life, he was told by elders in his village that simply his presence as a Western-educated and uninitiated adult in the village was causing disharmony and suffering. And, and this is what one of his elders said to him, is, you cannot live here as you are now without, turn, as you are now without turning this place into what you are. This is what the white man did through the land of the black man. He could not be here without subverting our home to fit his needs. When a person has changed the way you have, one of two things always happens. Either you die into the old part of yourself, and that is painful, or you make everyone else die into you. The first one is human. The second is not. And so I think it's really interesting when we begin to look at how um, someone becomes an elder in this culture, what it means actually to be an adult. We've we've already talked about that a little bit, but to to go on a little more, um, I'm going to draw a little tiny diagram up here of what might be seen in many of these cultures as sort of like the journey of a soul in a sense. Very, very overly simplistic. Um, So we have here... 
essentially, you could see this as like your soul, your being, your embodiment. And up here is consciousness. And then over here, you could see as unconsciousness. And so, and this is maybe like that divide between the conscious and the unconscious. And so you start your life kind of up here in a sense, you know, as, as a, and that's obviously a little um, oversimplified because there's a lot of ways that maybe as children, we have an even greater consciousness of our soul and what we came here to do because we're fresh out of the oven, so to speak, of the cosmos, um, just returning. But uh, as we get older, it's like we, we have this little tiny, like, iceberg tip of consciousness and this vast sea of unconsciousness beneath. And so over the course of our life, gradually, we begin to bring more and more of our unconscious into consciousness um, until at the end of our life, if we're a true elder, then we've done the work to embody the fullness of the soul we came here to live in this incarnation. And we have just that thinnest, tiny little mask of the unknown and mystery that keeps us in physical body and the planet. So we can then give, share the wisdom of our life with others and still be here without completely vanishing um, in body and spirit. <laughs> um, and so this is great. This is like how things tech, like ideally would be. But realistically speaking, because we're human beings... Um, and I just mean contemporary human beings, any human beings, uh, as we begin to, as our soul begins to come into embodiment for a million different reasons, we might try to prevent that from happening. Because when you're a child, you're extremely vulnerable and dependent on your parents. You're dependent on these people for love and for nourishment. So you, if, you, if there's a part of your soul that you think might make these people stop loving you, maybe they're not going to feed you tomorrow. So let's try to keep that part of the soul down. So maybe you create this little like ice flow here where that part tried to come up and you're like, nope, not today. I need to be fed. Um, and yeah. And then maybe there's like a little thicker pieces of ice flow from a shamanic perspective of where a part of you is in so much pain in a given situation um, maybe you're in like a traumatic situation or experiencing some kind of abuse um, that you abandon that part of yourself, that part of your soul to survive and be able to keep moving on and keep living in your everyday life. So then there's maybe even a thicker ice flow that's built up over that like initial fear. Um, and you know, I'm not going to go into every example right now of all the different ways that we, out of fear, try to limit expressions of our own soul. But I think all of you, if you thought for a moment, you could think of ways that the roles you were expected to embody in your family or in your life in general caused you to cut off or limit parts of your soul in different senses. And so what's important to understand from an animist perspective is that... This, that what would happen in an initiation into adulthood is all of this ice that maybe had developed over time here is able to melt. And this steady process of dipping into the unconscious, bringing out into expression, and dipping back in the unconscious is able to happen again and, and flow more easily as you drop the baggage of your, your family of origin and your childhood but, and step into that larger relationship with other than human intelligence. But when that doesn't happen, then we tend to get what we have in our, in our contemporary Western culture, which is 
uh, many of us walking around with sort of the emotional bodies of children in a sense and a lot of parts of ourselves that we have denied and sort of locked away to prevent being embodied that we can't even get access to if we want to because our mind has sort of shoved them away and thrown away the key. And I'll get into that in a second because that's more moving into the, what we call the shadow in a sense from, from you know, Jung's definition of the shadow. And so I think the, the other important thing to understand in this diagram is that the soul in all of this, this, this part of us that's wanting to come into consciousness is not actually passive, that it's trying to come into embodiment and it's conspiring from an Anna's perspective with our life, with all of creation to get itself to come into embodiment. So in a sense, our life and our soul are conspiring to get us to see these parts of ourselves that we have denied or shut down in a sense. Um, where to put this? So then to talk about what are shadow selves in this context, I, I want to go back a moment to talk about uh, more of a Freudian definition of shadow. Even if Freud wouldn't necessarily use that word, Freud talked a lot about the sort of negative aspects of the unconscious and, and the sense of the id as like the, the parts of our psyche which kind of contradict with moral issues and forces to do- disobey social and ethical tradition. So it's like you know, greed or murderous um, impulse or, or sexual impulses, these like parts that aren't socially acceptable and that actually are judged as negative and bad that we have to acknowledge every human has is in a sense a very like Freudian relationship with shadow. And then Jung starts to talk about shadow as any unconscious aspect of the personality which the conscious ego does not identify in itself. So rather than saying it's necessarily bad, it's just any part that's unconscious and, and not identified with by the, by the ego, by the conscious self. And so Jung also kind of conflates the shadow as that whole vast sea of unconsciousness. Anything is in the unconscious as the shadow and also the selves that are lost in that archetypal space of the unconscious. And so to, I would like to move into a definition um, that really I learned from one of my teachers in, in my shamanic tradition, Christina Pratt, which talks about these selves as, and the shadow is not necessarily all of our unconscious. Because if we're, again, living you know, in a way that we are initiated into adulthood properly, then the unconscious doesn't have to be the shadow because it's not, there's not all this ice over. It's just something we're regularly working throughout the course of our life to engage with and dip into and bring into embodiment. But, but from a Western, you know, analytic perspective, then of course all the unconscious is in shadow if it's all locked away under this huge flow of ice in a second, in a sense. So to, to find a middle ground between those two definitions, we can look at the shadow as this kind of archetypal space in which our mind puts parts of ourselves that it thinks will kill us if we embody and throws away the key. So like if you want to imagine yourself as a shadow self, imagine being falsely accused, tossed into prison without a trial, and then forgotten, and knowing that people are telling stories about you and projecting their stuff onto you as well. 
Um, so if you were in that situation, you'd probably feel a little vengeful as well, which I think is where we get this idea that the shadow holds all the negative. Because of course you're going to become twisted and monstrous if you've been locked away somewhere and falsely accused and, and a perfectly, you're, you're a perfectly authentic part of you, but you're forced to watch someone's life, your own life, from the sidelines. And so that's, that's really how I define, define shadow and how I engage with it in my practice is that, is that this part of us that's perfectly authentic and vibrant and vital actually for us bringing that unique genius into the world, but has been locked away and that we cannot use our mind to access because our mind is the one who locked it away in the first place. So if we try to use our mind to access it, we're putting ourselves at odds with ourselves. So even though shadow cells are locked away, that doesn't mean that they can't act in the world because they're still part of us. Like as opposed to soul loss that I was talking about earlier in that definition from a shamanic perspective, that part of you is gone. It's like lost in space and time somewhere. It's no longer held in the body. The whole is left in your body, but the part is somewhere else. With shadow selves, it's like this archetypal space in which we can put something away for safekeeping. We're not destroying it. We're not losing it completely or obliterating it, but we aren't allowing it access to our consciousness. But it still has access to some of our free will because it still lives in our body. If we see the free will as our ability to co-create reality. So how it does that, how it can affect our life is through patterns of intense fear, intense attraction, and patterns of self-sabotage. And in a, which I'm sure none of you have experienced ever. <laughs> not today. Yeah, not today. <laughs> but so... Did I manifest my computer breaking? <laughs> yes, it's all your fault. Your um, no, so another way to look at this is that it's not just that they can do, that our shadow selves can sort of have these sneaky ways of accessing our life, but they're also much faster than us. They're constantly working ahead of us because they operate in the realm of the unconscious. They don't have to worry about how will this affect this person? How will this affect my wife or my husband or my kids or what? They're just like, I'm going to do this thing. And so as opposed to us, who's weighing a lot of different awarenesses in our conscious and our ego structure, who's really focused on working hard to make sure we get to the path we set for ourselves in our life, which is a good thing. I don't think the ego is a bad thing, but um, the shadow in a sense is, 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 is very quick and has no inhibitions. And so when we are possessed by our shadow, it often feels like moments of total unconsciousness, like we're totally blind to what we just did. And then it takes like a really good friend, hopefully to reflect back to us what just happened. We're like, I didn't say that. Or I didn't do that. <laughs> what are you talking about? It doesn't make sense to me. I don't know why that would be offensive. Anyway, <laughs> um, clearly I have no experience with this. And, um, and then the, and then also it can be actually like losing time. Like, you know, you sit down to work on a paper for a conference and then four hours later, you're like, what happened with my day? Where was I? Why, why is nothing written yet? You know, <laughs> what's going on? <laughs> totally. Well, that's probably where you were. Yeah. Probably where your shadow was at least. Yeah. And so, um, I think I want to stop there for now and talking about the shadow, except to say that. So if we understand the shadow in this way, 
a psychological process is actually a really hard way to engage with the shadow because for the most part, psychological processes engage the mind. And so in my experience, what's much more effective in engaging the shadow and transforming it is processes that include the body and processes that include the heart and the emotions. Not that psychological processes can't include those things as well, but then the other piece that's often missing, even from psychological processes that do include the heart and the body, is the spirit. That there's a way in which, like I was showing, what as we're being initiated in adulthood, we're stepping into this larger conversation and our larger understanding of our place in life with, with many consciousnesses that are co-creating reality that aren't human necessarily, we need those consciousnesses, in a sense, to see our blind spots as human beings that, are, that allow us to access the new versions of the beliefs that cause us to deny those parts of ourselves in the first place. So, so to find replacements for those old beliefs, in a sense. And so, yeah, I'm going to stop there for now with the shadow, and I want to go into the ancestors now. And so, because we've examined shadow, which happens when we're not initiated into adulthood. But now I want to look at what happens when we're not tending death, that threshold of initiation. And so while there are, of course, you know, many variations and anything I say here is going to be an oversimplification of the many rich traditions around the world of approaching death that are all really beautiful and valid in different ways. Um, I want to, I want to sort of try to distill some of the archetypal functions of tending death that you see across many of those cultures. And so ideally, when a person is approaching death, they've lived because they were initiated into adulthood, because people were tending their birth and making sure they were protected and bringing their gifts here to the community that they've been dreamed by the ancestors to bring. They die having lived their life in alignment with their soul's purpose, having brought their gifts to the world. Um, they become a true elder and been honored for, for what they, was poisoned in their life. They turn into medicine and deliver to the people. And they have cared for their body and mind and emotions and spirit throughout their life, striving to maintain balance. So they're relatively physically healthy and have the energy needed to die well. Um, obviously, for like, I would say 99% of us in our, in our culture, that's a, that's a big leap um, and a big assumption to make. But... Another piece of that also that we're missing, I think, in our culture is they have a clear understanding of the cosmology of their people around death and what to do after you die to make sure you get to the realm of the ancestors. And so and they're not given stories that are fear based about what might happen if they're bad during life that can cause them to become stuck here because they're afraid to even leave and face that judgment or whatever you think is going to happen afterwards. And so in this case, in this kind of ideal case, then the transition is really easy. They go to the place where they can reconcile their lives somewhat. They go to the realm of the ancestors. And then what happens in their community is first divination will be done to assert, ascertain the reason for death. Like, was this natural? Was there another reason? Is something need to be remediated? And what is needed to help the deceased spirit move on? So, so it's not just the living that are being tended, but the soul of the deceased person is making sure they get where they need to go. And then there's grief and reconciliation rituals for the living to release the living's ties to the deceased and really honor their life. So there, um, you know, there's this deep emotional catharsis. Yes, but there's also rituals like in many cultures you find rituals where people are um, 
well, to go back to the dogger culture, they have this one funerary practice where people just come up and they talk shit about the dead. They say like, <laughs> they say like, okay, so this, like this person owed me a bunch of money. I'm really angry about it. Like your family better help me out now. Like, you know, like, and, and, and so, you know, they keep talking it out until they can come to a place of personal reconciliation, whatever that takes as a community so that no one's left with these unresolved attachments with the person who's dead because the dead person can't help anymore in a sense from that reconciliation process. They need to go somewhere else. And so, and, and whatever they need to reconcile their stuff has already been taken care of by whoever's tending the process of the spirit moving on. And so after this type of rituals and these attachments are, are released and the person has truly said goodbye and they're praised for their life with the grief that's expressed, then ancestralization rituals are, are engaged to allow the person to be called back so the community can continue to access their wisdom. Um, and then they can, they not only can embody this wisdom as an individual, like calling back, like, you know, Robert, come back. I need you. I want to, I need your help with this particular thing that you're really good at, but they can also just be part of this collective of the wisdom of the ancestors, which includes both the humans who've gone before them in their lineage, but also often the other than humans. Because often if you go far back enough, when you trace back lineage in indigenous cultures, there's animals and plants that are, that are part of that lineage. And so if you look at contemporary culture, for the most part, many of us aren't reach approaching death having done those things, having expressed our soul's purpose to the fullest extent that we could, having um, you know, been honored in our eldership and, you know, I won't go through everything again, but we haven't, we haven't done those things. And we're often, you know, our hospitals in a sense approach people as um, like keep alive at all costs. So in that way where being our, our life is prolonged and we're losing the energy we need to actually die because it takes energy to transition in a sense we're just being held on in these limbo states and then we are often in the limbo state afterwards so and then and then the funerary practices are mostly for the living and not attending to the dead people who might be stuck so we have an epidemic of unresolved debt. Yeah, we do. We do. Yeah. Yeah. It's really sobering. I think, um, a really excellent book on, uh, ancestor work is, is by uh, Dr. Daniel for ancestral medicine. And in it, he, he calculates the actual numbers of like a rough account of how many unresolved dead people we probably have based on how many people have died. And like the past, you know, it's really terrifying and sobering to look at. I won't do that to you right now. <laughs> we don't have enough wine here yet, but, um, at, at the, essentially the problem with this is it's not just that our poor dead people are stuck. It's that we're still in relationship with those dead people, whether they're ancestors or not. They don't just go away. And it's actually really unhealthy for the dead to be in close proximity to the living when they're not true ancestors. And so the dead, one way this can show up is that the dead try to resolve their lives by hijacking the free will of their living descendants. So they don't know what's needed to resolve their life, though. They're still stuck in the beliefs that led them to make the choices they made while they were living that led to them dying unresolved. So they're just perpetuating those same choices in their living descendants. And 
So this results in their descendants carrying the same beliefs that led to their ancestors dying unresolved, and so then they die unresolved. And then over time, the patterns in the lineage snowball, getting worse and worse with each generation. I think many of us see this. If we look at our lines, if we know enough about our family to look at people and know the stories, we see patterns of you know mental unwellness, of alcoholism, of all these various different patterns, of never having enough money, whatever it is, you know, that, that go from generation to generation. And some family members are affected more by certain patterns than others. And so I, I guess I want to explore then how our denied selves in shadow and how our unresolved ancestors intersect with each other. Because these problems also aren't uh, apart from each other. They, we're all human experiencing all of them. So if we're born into a family system that's heavily informed by fear-based beliefs of the unresolved dead, we not only take those beliefs on ourselves, but we begin to lob off parts of ourselves that don't fit those disordered narratives. And so we want to receive that love and nourishment from our parents. And so we try to get that love at all costs, which can include shoving parts of us into the shadow or abandoning them completely with soul loss. Um, and so, for example, if I have an ancestral belief that vulnerability and softness will get men killed, then the soft and vulnerable part of myself will need to be locked away in the shadow because that's not safe to embody. And so you can see our epidemic of unresolved ancestors or ghosts in the West as a kind of cosmic collective shadow that spans not only generations but dimensions of reality from an animist perspective. Because as the living, we're meant to be carrying forward the wisdom of the ancestors. We're not meant to be starting everything from scratch again. And we're meant to be embodying our own unique gifts that we built upon that wisdom and then making it possible for the ones who are coming, our descendants, to be bringing their gifts into the world. So when we fail to do this, we, we, from an animist perspective, harm the very fabric of the universe. And just like our denied selves, if we keep our dead in the shadow, the only way they can act upon us is through illness, dysfunction, sabotage, or violence. That's the only way they can make themselves known. And if we refuse to be in intimate relationship with our dead, the catastrophes of previous generations continue to haunt us. And so some have described the time we are living in as a time of unveiling. Like we can look at like, ah, everything's going to shit, but it's also just like everything's been pretty bad in many ways. And so it's a sense, it's almost like as if there's these hastily plastered on bandages that have been uh, being unwrapped and revealing the raw wounds still festering underneath. I think it's much easier now for me to talk to you all about this problem and for you to see the resonance in your own lives. And it might have been like 15, 20 years ago when we could like pretend things were pretty much okay, you know, <laughs> in certain ways. Some of us could. Um, and so when the dead go untended, their blessings become burdens. And when parts of ourselves are kept trapped in the shadow, our denial generates violence. And when our collective shadows animate the unresolved dead, we generate collective nightmares, much like the one we're living in. And yet, I actually find that the role that our personal shadows and unresolved ancestors play in this collective nightmare to be comforting. Because our shadow selves never left. They are still waiting for us to rescue them and transform them. And our ancestors still walk with us, just like I said, whether they're elevated or or unresolved, whether we do anything about them or just simply ignore them, they're here. And so the shadow's function, perhaps, is to keep safe that which we have discarded until we are ready to engage with it again. 
And the design of life is that it takes an enormous amount of energy to escape from ourselves, as we saw from this diagram. So in a sense, I think the key to our liberation at this time, both personally and collectively, is, is waiting for us in our own hearts with these parts of ourselves that are stuck in the shadow and the, and the, and the ancestors that are sort of waiting for us to turn and listen to them. So I don't mean this as a bypass to so that our personal work can be a substitute for engaging with the collective dysfunction of the current reality we live in. But I think when we try to generate change without doing the deep heart repair work of transforming our shadow and healing our ancestral lines, our unconsciousness and blindness tends to just create new versions of the same essential problems. <clears throat> this work is not necessarily easy, but it doesn't have to be impossible or the work of lifetimes. And I think more and more skilled ritualists are devising ways to address these issues. And so I'm really interested in, in how we can all work together to apply the appropriate tools and wisdoms that we all have for the job. I think, um, as I was saying, if we try to address shadow as just a purely psychological issue, the process is arduous because we can't think our way out of the shadow. And so um, if we try to address ancestor work as a psychological process, we get stuck transforming our own emotional issue without ever touching the root of the issue and the unresolved energy of the dead, which often feels like a wave that constantly is overtaking us. We can get like a little bit out from under it, but then it just comes crashing back down because we haven't touched the root of it. We've only been working with what's in, held inside of us. And so I'm really interested in like going into the solutions and ways that I found and my teacher found for working with shadow and unresolved ancestors beyond the scope of this talk. But what I'm interested in is us beginning to have more awareness around how skilled ritualists and psychologists can work together and cultivate discernment as to when which tool is needed and how, how there can be a collaboration. And so while we witness the return of destructive patterns we might have thought were dead, we are also beginning to see the old structures of supremacy beginning to decay and show their seams. It seems there's a larger cultural awareness beginning to arise globally that none of us will get through this next moment if all voices aren't given a seat at the table. We are feeling the pressures of being asked to take a more rigorous approach to accountability for how we choose to use our own power and how it affects those around us in the world we live in. And as more and more of our collective crises manifest, perhaps the ice of our unconsciousness is beginning to thaw. We begin to see we'll move through this moment together or not at all. The world is calling us into an initiation. And if we can begin to step out of our Western bias in seeing the challenges we currently face as simply part of the human condition, I think we can quickly begin to liberate ourselves from the way we internalize and recreate the structures of oppression we are striving to dismantle. We can step out of the blindness and lie of separation at the root of the systems of oppression. Or, perhaps rather than stepping out, it's helpful to see it as an invitation to step back in, to turn back and enter into the underworld where our soul and our ancestors are waiting for us. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a lecture by Langston Kahn, a New York City-based shamanic practitioner, entitled Shades and Shadows, How Our Unresolved Ancestors and Denied Selves Hold the Keys to Our Collective Liberation, presented at the conference Rewriting the Future, 100 Years of Esoteric Modernism and Psychoanalysis. 
For more, please visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net. Langston's website, occupyyourheart.com, or the podcast website, renderingunconscious.org. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Trapart Books, 2019. For more, please visit our publisher's website, trapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three c-a-r-l. Your support is greatly appreciated. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Can I record this? Honesty is the key to this. To everything. You can't be creative in any field whatsoever if you're not honest with yourself. A long time ago, I formulated myself basically for myself only like a declaration in hubris and soon they would tip the scale and both why not God reflected but and this I want the courage an audacity to believe in my creation, rewriting artistic expression. A towards everything, inside out, not vice, synchronicities galore, the essence of magic, Genuine hope of a divine plan. Moderation, but still away instead. In contempt and for posterity. Access could never misuse. Laughed at the joke. I could see that it had done service before and that the whole explanation was simply an elaborate sell. I couldn't cope, but I financial control. If wealth, prosperity, and affluence bring a greater sense of non-distraction.
and a possibility to focus more on the artistic process, then there's nothing tracks out as she comes forward, off in the opposite direction, as she, thoughtful and preoccupied, again as we have seen him, a sense, being loved and being aware of it, loving and being aware of it, being aware in general and loving it, response and success on all creative fronts, intelligent feedback and selective dialogue, telling you the zone in a more well level and expensive mechanical miniatures according to my inspirational elders mirth and chuckle she turns her head and looks at the building out of the corner of her eye then she looks in the other direction understood everything herself thanks she said I think I get it you gave me yourself there or a piece of yourself with selfless altruistic and spiritual Gandhi other eastern figures gurus choices through their egos the Levian perspective disrobes I think I understand it's about being open for suggestion open for being open that sounds just right he replied but enough